Blog Talk Radio.
If you've listened to the first three episodes of our REPA Radio Hour, our stories range from the sounds you just heard, or better stated, from the male wings to the huge Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, also known as the Whisperliner. And now, let's go into our show. As we like to tell all our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, that's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and click the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given the message that the show has not yet begun. Many just call into the show at 213-816-1611 and listen in or... Uh, during our discussions, join us in our conversation. Now you can choose to listen or talk with the host. Well, last week in Episode 3, we read stories from the early newsletters about stories and information, rules back in the early days of Eastern's history. And we decided, decided to present favorite short stories of your producer over the years of the Repartee magazine. So we start today's show with this one. This short story appeared in the 1985 issue of Repartee. It was written by Jimmy Goodwin, Repartee's historian, or Repa's historian. The title of the um, short story is The Saga of Flight 85. It reads... The evening was cold as I parked the T-model in the driveway of our little rented home in Sandstone, Virginia. Sandstone was six miles from Richmond and almost next to Bird Field, Bird Airport. Since the inception of Pitcairn Aviation, parent company of Eastern, many of the local employees had lived in the place named for Oliver J. Sands, the banker who had taken the remains of a World War I ammunition plant village and developed it into a nice little town. After spending my day off in Richmond, we were tired. The house was cold as my wife, T, went through the ritual of getting Megan ready for bed. I shook the ashes and poked up the coal in the old Arcola in the living room. Then I reached over and switched on the home-built short wave set. That would give me an idea of whether I would get a night's sleep or would I be called out to help with unscheduled flights? Asians did not have telephones in those days, depression days. As the set warmed up, it came in loud and clear. 85 to Newark, returning account severe turbulence. It was 8.35 p.m. Newark repeated the message, and I continued to encourage the fire, but my ear was tuned to the radio. It wasn't exactly a routine message. I took care of a few chores and sat down before the Arcola. The radio was within reach. Traffic seemed to be routine on the south end of the line. Signals on 29-22 kilocycles. Our night frequency were as clear as, as a bell. Newark was trying to raise 85 again. Finally, in answer to a request for his position, 85 to Newark call you back. We're working on an orientation problem. It wasn't clear whether impatience indicated cockpit activity or unwillingness to communicate. 
perhaps both. Severe turbulence meant they were taking a beating in the cockpit, not to mention the cabin of ship 323, but half an hour was a long time to circle around and come back in. I could picture Norm Scully, the chief dispatcher, prodding the radio operator, where the hell is 85? There was no sense in asking for a position when it was clear the crew had no answer. In later years, it would be called the flight deck. But in the cockpit of the DC-2 on January 24, 1938, was pilot Fred Jones with 18 years' experience as barnstormer, flying soldier of fortune in South America, and airline pilot. Taciturn and authoritative, Fred was of the old school. He relied upon his resources. His co-pilot learned through osmosis, rarely making a landing. Fred knew the route between Newark and Washington like a book. The merry-go-round was his by choice and by seniority. With him was Navy-trained Jim Garrigan, exactly 34 days on the job with Eastern. It is doubtful that Pilot Jones knew or cared that his young co-pilot had received special training at TWA with a new radio direction finder. The manual loop was new to Eastern and to its crew. No formal training had taken place at Eastern, and besides, the equipment wasn't needed on the merry-go-round, at least in the minds of veterans of the run between Newark and Washington. In contrast to the stoic Jones, Jim Garrigan was gregarious, friendly, and smiled easily. Neither probably knew nor understood the other on that fateful night. In the cabin, flight attendant Lemieux tried to keep his two passengers calm. Other passengers had canceled when it was determined the flight would pass over Camden and Baltimore because of weather conditions. Since it was too rough for coffee, there was little he could provide except chewing gum and cotton for their ears. If fear clutched their hearts, others would share it before the ordeal ended. Copilot Garrigan had just completed the onerous task of pumping the landing gear when they hit the wind shear line. It was as if some monster had the ship in its clutches, shaking it, trying to wring the life out of it. The seats tried to tear loose from the deck. The instrument panel quivered and shook. Ship number 323 creaked and groaned as a terrible buffeting continued. Trip 5, scheduled to depart at 9 p.m., had a, had a load of sun-seeking passengers anxious to escape the bitter cold of the New York January. The puzzling problem of Flight 85 brought added caution to operations. Newark 85, Trip 5 is ready to leave. He wants to know what you think. Tell him to stay on the ground, came the terse reply. There was little communication during the next two hours, an occasional request for position, and a repeated working out and orientation problem. The ground gave no hint of concern, no advice, no awkward questions. As the pilot was wrestling with his problem, and the only thing the ground could do was to let him know that they were standing by, fully confident he'd bring his ship down safely, hiding the growing anxiety 
in operations. Listening to the circuit, it was obvious no other planes were operating in the Northeast that night. In early 1938, a meteorologist had no way of knowing what was occurring upstairs. The strong inversion with unforecasted fury caught the ship on its first turn after taking off to the northeast. Cyclonic gale forces from the south pushed the ship to the north and, in effect, a new set of navigational signals enveloped them in a manner the crew could not comprehend. Each turn swept Flight 85 further north as it tried to escape the violent forces that engulfed it. But on that night, neither ground personnel nor those on board Flight 85 understood the phenomenon that placed the ship in a plight of an insect caught up in a silent, spidery web of darkness, fighting courageously, desperately, but never quite able to break away. As I sat on the edge of my chair, grasping every word, aware of the ominous silence on 2922, I knew scores of others listened, too. The few were unusually brief. Ground crews gave wind and Colesman readings quickly. Fellow pilots made only the briefest comments, all keeping the circuit clear for 85 and listening as the drama painfully drew on. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, vice president then and general manager of Eastern Airlines, was attending a meeting at the Hotel Astor when he learned that one of his trips was in trouble. He hurried to his apartment to keep in touch by radio. Pilot Jones's wife, Florence, did not have a shortwave radio as her two boys slept. She kept the most agonizing vigil of all with calls to the airport every few minutes. At 11.20 p.m., almost three hours after takeoff, came the first glimmer of hope. 85 to Newark. We're circling at 2,300 feet and descending over a town on the edge of a river. We can see down through the stuff, but see a large electric sign and a water tank. Call CBS and NBC networks. Uh, ask them if their listeners can locate us. There was an element of excitement in what had been discipl disciplined calm before. One can only imagine the reaction of Captain Eddie. His ship, a part of the great silver fleet, lost in its own environs, calling on radio listeners for help. He swallowed his pride and said, Call him. Almost immediately the call started. Reports came from Boston to Miami, but the town was soon lost in clouds, and the DC-2 continued its aimless flight in what seemed to be the devil's graveyard. Camden 85, you just passed over the field. Make a 180 and you'll have it. I was electrified, at least, at last. 85 had found an airport. Camden was talking him down, but then there was an embarrassed silence. It had not been 85. It was 1 a.m., and now the subject changed to fuel on board. Weather for several airports, 
was transmitted, but with little enthusiasm, for the pilots of 85 could not orient them himself. A good many of Eastern's 1,000 employees were now involved in the vigil. It was shaping up like a major air carrier disaster in slow motion. As I watched the flames through the little isinglass windows of the Arcola, I felt my prayers were futile, but I had nothing else to offer. Pilots at home in Newark area had learned of the plight of Flight 85, and many raced to the airport to form a, form a brain trust of friends. Dispatcher Bob Rothrock had said that charts were spread out everywhere. Pilot W. Whiprick and his group compiled charts of information from 85, airport weather, fuel, even hunches of pilots, but nothing seemed to make sense. As the time wore on, a subtle change had taken place in radio exchanges. The mantle of professional bravado was gone. The rigid adherence to formal message structure relaxed. The lifeblood of ship 323 was rapidly being sucked through its carburetors. Operations knew the flight was nearing its end. In the eerie darkness of the dark cockpit, the crew, in extremis, had only one fuel gauge to watch. Others had already read empty. The luminous needle now measured their remaining time in gallons, but they still searched for breaks in the overcast, any glow that would indicate a town or city below. Ship 323 had four fuel tanks, two mains of 180 each, and two auxiliary tanks, each with capacity of 75, making a total of 510 gallons on board. Eastern had the reputation of flying when other airlines were grounded, and its pilots coveted fuel. There is little doubt that the tanks were topped off before departure. Co-pilot Jim Garrigan's son, Jim, himself a pilot, reports an interesting note in the logbook entry of his father for that trip. Gas, 540. Newark to 85, how much fuel do you have? Half a tank, came the plaintiff reply. Newark to 85, which tank? The reserve was a testy response. It wasn't clear whether the crew thought operations was quibbling or if it indicated resignation after more than six hours of futile effort. But the difference was important. At best, there was less than 30 minutes left with one half a reserve tank, and the brain trust was now keeping the chart in minutes. The hands on the clock were fairly racing now. Personnel were drained. With few glances at the clock, they continued to chart phone calls, whether pilot, hypothetical positions, and hope. Pilot Whiprick moved quickly to the radio position. Without waiting to rely, relay instructions through the operator, he picked up the microphone. Fred, this is Whiprick. We've got you now over New Britain. With measured calmness, he continued, fly 040 to Hartford. It's 20 miles. 
I could picture the pilot turning the big ship to the first proposal, proposed course in over six hours. His eyes now divided between compass and fuel gauge, cars tuned with their uh, fear, alert for the dreaded cough in the engines. The voice of his friend, with its startling information, brought an audible change in the crew. Subdued despair turned to animated hope. Whip, what's the elevation between New Britain and Hartford? Come down to 500, uh, terrain low and swampy. The weather's just lifted at Hartford. Members of the Brain Trust, dispatchers and radio operators looked at each other and at the clock. Calls had been made to Hartford Airport requesting that all lights be turned on 85 had been given Hartford weather. 85 to Newark, I can see four towers with obstruction lights. Newark 85, that's Pratt & Whitney. Can you make it? We're going to try, was the determined answer. After what seemed an interminable time, 85 to Newark, we're on the ground, at least Hartford. As the operator opened the switch on the microphone to acknowledge, shouts of joy and relief could be heard in the background. Outrageous conduct for an operations officer office. I started to bank the fire in the Arcola. It was 3.05. There is an epilogue to this story, and it reads, The simultaneous report of the drone of engines over overhead from several radio listeners in New Britain, the lifting of the weather at Hartford and the ability of Flight 85 to fly with tanks that should have been dry were described in the newspapers by Captain Rickenbacker as the finest aviation job in air transport history. The Brain Trust called in phenomen phenomenal luck. Editorials referred to a plucky crew who wouldn't give up the ship and stressed the importance of modern ships with tremendous reserve, both in fuel and power. As I write this, I can help but wonder at John Garrigan's providential 30 gallons of fuel. From my yellowed scrapbook, there is yet another explanation. Florence Jones when it was over, whispered a prayer and said, in a few minutes more, he would not have been able to stay up. I was never more certain there is a God in heaven. Wow, what a story. Absolutely. You know, Jimmy Goodwin was the REPA historian and contributed many stories printed in the magazine Repartee. And as you heard, he was an excellent writer and colorful, with colorful description. Even though Jimmy was not a pilot, he could tell the story as if he was with the crew. Uh, had any of you heard that story of the saga of 85, uh, unless no, you read it know. in the magazine? Okay, well, that's just one story that we intend to tell. Now, I think you'll like this next story. It's shorter. But I think uh, you'll enjoy it because we had some fascinating pilots with Eastern. So see what you think of this one.
I'm sure a lot of Eastern employees never knew the following story printed in the 1986 repartee. The title, The Pilot Who Soloed Charles Lindbergh. World War I had finally come to an end. Everyone fortunate enough to survive was back and the government was busy disposing of its surplus of equipment left over from the war. In the summer of 1924 at Souther Field in Americus, Georgia, Archie Cummer was assembling brand new flying jennies which had never been removed from their crates. These were planes which would have been used for training of the World War I pilots. They were for sale to prospective purchasers after the planes had first been tested and the buyer had demonstrated his ability to handle it in the air. Late one afternoon, a young man appeared in a Boy Scout uniform looking about for a cheap plane in which to test his doubtful prowess, prowess as an aviator. He told Archie that he had been flying for some time and he was looking for a plane to which to take his test for a pilot's license. Archie advised him that he could furnish the plane easily enough, but that he would have to put up a $500 deposit before they could let him fly it. The young man didn't seem to fancy the idea of risking his money on the flight, so he looked over the supply of planes, picked one out, and asked how much it would cost to buy the plane outright. The purchase price tallied exactly with the amount necessary for a deposit. The young man reached into his pocket pulled out $500 and announced, sold. For several days, Archie Cummer and his unknown pupil taxied back and forth across the field, hopped off into the clouds and glided safely back again to the hangar. Little was said between the two of them. Both were extremely modest and reticent individuals. After two or three test, Archie told him he could fly, he could try a solo flight over the field. He did so, believing that he was telling the truth about his former experience. It was not until long afterward that Archie learned he had never before flown alone, and that his knowledge of aviation consisted almost entirely of groundwork, which he had received at Robinson Field in St. Louis. The young man showed no part particular elation of the fact that he had won permission to solo. He told Archie it had become too late in the afternoon and he preferred to wait until the following day. At seven o'clock the next morning, Archie arrived at the field only to discover that the young man had been up for more than an hour and that instead of circling the field and landing, he had departed Americus, never to return. The young man in the Boy Scout uniform was Charles Lindbergh. Archie Cummer had soloed the Lone Eagle. Archie Cummer, a native of Athens, Georgia, began flying when he was just 15 years old. He was first with the Army Air Corps. He was with the Army Air Corps and later became a commercial mechanic. In Americus, Georgia, with the San W Airplane Company. 
he ferried planes to buy pop to buyers in other parts of the country. Once on a trip to Michigan, Archie found the buyer to be out of town for a week. When he finally ran out of funds, he took his last 25 cents and purchased a loaf of bread and bottle of syrup. He made a syrup sandwich by scooping out the inside of the bread and pouring in the syrup. By the time he got hungry again, Western Union had money for him. Archie continued his aviation career with Pitcairn Aviation as a mechanic during the week and airmail pilot on weekends. Eastern Air Transport lost its most eligible bachelor when Archie Comer saw a picture in the rotogravure section of the Sunday paper of a com comely young lady dressed in a snappy hunting outfit, resting between shots in the quail field, holding on a leash, three fine English setters. They later met in a restaurant in Hapeville, Georgia, and were married in Miami with Fred and Billy Kahn as attendants. Archie Comer was a man of considerable skill, which encompassed much more than flying. He was a crack shot and won the Florida 20-gauge skeet championship for three straight years. He was an avid tennis player and taught his wife, Sarah, to be a champion. She continued for 48 years. He constructed four tennis courts and three barns. As a pilot, Archie Comer was top of the line. My grandson would characterize him as cool, and it was with a cool head that Archie Comer reacted to the situation, which took place over Nashville, Tennessee, in a Lockheed Electra. The stewardess came forward to the cockpit and advised Archie that the floor in the aisle was caving in. Immediately, the electrical catastrophe of major proportion became nearly because nearly everything in the electra was operated by electricity. What happened was a large copper strap had come loose from one of the main electrical circuit buses and fallen down across two other main buses, creating an arc and shorting out the whole electrical system. The heat generated by the arc had melted the floor above the electrical service center on the airplane. The weather was not good, and Archie Comer had to land the plane without instruments, which he did in record time, averting a fire. It was probably one of the finest pieces of flying ever done in the history of aviation, and so recognized by all of us who are familiar with the Electra. There are many things that are unique about Eastern Airlines. The basic instrument grouping on the aircraft instrument panel came about as a result of input from the pilots. Check pilots were chosen for their ability and experience. They went back periodically to fly the line so as not to lose touch. Archie Comer was a check pilot in Atlanta, and he was an inspiration for all of us who were privileged to fly with him. It would have been unthinkable to give Archie anything less than your finest effort, no matter if you were being line-checked or serving as his co-pilot. Probably those of us who came to Eastern Airlines from the military after World War II appreciated him the most because we were his co-pilots and spent 
most time with him. He was a champion in every single thing he did. For after all, he was a pilot who soloed Charles Lindbergh. You know, it isn't any wonder Eastern Airline pilots were respected as they were among pilots of other airlines. We had the most fascinating pilots and with credits such as Archie Comer, and most were so modest they didn't want to talk about their adventures. When I knew the captain I would be flying with on a trip was a pilot in World War II, I would casually bring up the many pilots with Eastern that had served in the war and try to pry them into telling me of their stories. Well, Jack Tack was just one of those pilots flying a P-40 that was shot down in the Pacific and who wound up in a raft and picked up days later. Oh, I found, uh, and and I found uh, out later on that uh, he was a World War II ace, meaning that he had Five kills uh, recorded, and uh, but he never talked about that. I did a little research on him, and and uh, that's what I found. The author of the story you just heard was uh, Captain Bill Malone, a repartee's editor, for 15 years. And we present these stories as we present them. You'll hear more of the writings and memories of this great writer, editor, and Eastern captain. And what would a newsletter be without some aviation humor? The editor, Captain Malone, I just spoke of, found this little bit of humor to go into repartee for his fellow retired pilots. And speaking of Captain Bill Malone, he inserted this in his 1995 issue of repartee. Two ships passing in the night. Over Billings, Montana, Eastern's Flight 450, a westbound Lockheed L-1011, approaching Eastern's Flight 453, an eastbound Lockheed L-1011. Hey, Bill, do you know what General Custer was wearing at the Battle of the Little Bighorn? No. An arrow shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bill. And uh, that's uh, that's all she wrote. That's our readings from the Best of Repartee, the Retired Eastern Pilots Association's official organ for today. I hope you will stick around for some REPA chat. And I see we have a few callers on the line. And, and um, let's see what's happening out there. Uh, what do you think, guys, of the two stories and, and um, what we had today? Uh, the first one was really good. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, it, it makes you stop and think about <clears throat> what they really went through uh, back in the day with uh, not that great of uh, navigation limits, instruments. And the guys on the ground, the dispatchers, only had charts yeah. uh, to go by and, and radio conversations. It was it was like a shoestring operation. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah. Hey, Neil, this is Chuck. Yeah, Chuck. The first, the story was that Hap Harrington? <laughs> no, that was a real story, uh, not Hop Harrigan. 
and uh, it should have been it should have been a Hop Harrigan story. Yeah. But uh, it uh, was the writing of Jimmy Goodwin, and and if you read Jimmy Goodwin's stories in the uh, magazines and the book that uh, John Engel and I put together, the best of repartee, you'll find that uh, he was a wonderful writer. And uh, a lot of his writings were taken from his notes because he was with Eastern for many, many years. And I think he was a historian for several years of EARA newspaper. I think he was their historian as well until he passed. And I think that's been a number of years ago. Do you remember Dorothy? Was he there when you were there? No, no, I don't remember that at all. Uh, it was the other gentleman that still is. Uh, um, I'm yeah, to I can't think of his name David. either. Yeah, David. Yeah, I can't think of his name. Michael is not with us now. He had that medical appointment, so he left. But uh, Jimmy also was a fine cartoonist because. Uh, he contributed a lot of cartoons, and they were really good. Of course, they were all about the cartoons about Eastern Airlines people, and whether it was reservations or in the cockpit or maintenance or whatever, he could really draw a cartoon and uh, with the right wording. And he contributed many cartoons that were printed by the editors of uh, Repa. I know I... Uh, picked up a few of his that he sent me and included it in those magazines that I put together while I was the editor of the magazine. Was it David Lee Russell? No, I don't think so. The historian that uh, before or after, that doesn't sound right. Um but uh, I know Art Furchcott was, and we've, right. he, yeah, we've done was, a lot of stories uh, of uh, of Art. Uh, Art. Right. We have that Art on the also, website, too. Yeah. yeah, he was the editor for a while, and he contributed many stories to the magazine. And uh, good writing, good writing. And that's why I like to tell these stories uh, on Thursdays, especially since a lot of folks are locked in now and don't mind uh, being read to. Uh, I hope it didn't put you to sleep. But I, no, you know, it, it did not. Listen, no. listening to listening to my recording of that story, I was absolutely fascinated uh, about the way he wrote that story. I mean, uh, golly, it made it almost a movie out of that. Yeah, right. Exactly. It was really right on. I mean, it got your attention. You had a really stop and listen because you were so interested, I think, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you did such a nice job of re, re, of recording that, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> to, me, to me, I could never get through that without bumbling my words about 25 <laughs> times or whatever. Well, you know, it was funny when I wrote that, I mean, when I read the last story, the Lindbergh story, I was outside on the porch, and uh, we we're not too far, as Dorothy knows and Don knows, that I'm not too far from I-95. And uh, the traffic on I-95 is uh, not as much as it has been, but it's still there to be heard. And if you listen carefully, you could hear the hum of the cars uh, because my porch is exposed right to that area. Uh, And uh, 
I normally, if I make mistakes, which I do make mistakes, I normally try to record it, but uh, I was just kind of uh, wanting to get through that, and I made several mistakes, but I try to polish it up if I can. I've got an editor that allows me to take out me turning the pages and things like that, so it's uh, been very helpful. Yeah. Well, those we were the days. Like I said, I was offline there for about uh, 15 minutes or so when the do- when the doctor called. So that's why oh, I, okay. I was probably still showing online, but I was on the call <laughs> waiting. But yeah, we yeah. were saying that with those old uh, DC two days and all that. I said, well, you, the only way you could tell a good pilot was he was still alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was researching through um, the. News wings, the mail, you know, the mail, the, the early days from 1927 to 1934, I think, were the newsletters. Uh, Pitt Karen, first couple of years, and then it was sold to uh, Eastern Air Transport. And uh, I found the first memorial written for an Eastern Air Mail pilot in that uh, in that newsletter and thought I would read it during a Monday night show. Uh, his name was Morrison. And, uh, so we'll, we'll read that. Probably somebody will read it. And, um, very interesting. He was killed uh, in a mail plane. Yeah. Fascinating stories. How's everybody doing with the uh, virus? Uh, you guys hanging in there, of course. Don't have it yet. <laughs> well, you got, at least you got something yet. to look forward to. I well. mean, it's such, a, it's such an ordeal getting groceries and wiping every single thing down. I mean, it it takes up your day because you get all these separate deliveries because they don't always give you the first order. You know, they got replacements, and then they they don't have it, and you got to reapply for it and go through that. And maybe three days later, you might get it. So every day we get a delivery or two or three. <laughs> well, I, Dorothy, I'm getting deliveries from my daughter in Mobile, Alabama. She's sending me toilet paper. And uh, <laughs> I told her I don't need any more because Publix now, their shelves are really stocked. Well, we paper, haven't been so. able to get it since March 3rd, so consider, oh yourself, very, yeah, consider yourself very lucky. They still got yep. me going outside. <laughs> <laughs> you still have the outhouse, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if what we is, didn't have what we had previously before all this started, I don't know where we'd be, honestly. So it really yeah. is a worry. Well, what you most know, people forget is the toilet paper it has two sides. It only doesn't have one just one side. <laughs> they get double your money. <laughs> double your pleasure, double yeah. your fun. <laughs> hey Don, five for a ten. Yeah, Don, when you when you talked about the outhouse, it bring it it brought to my mind as as I. Remember, recall having used outhouses, uh, especially at my grandmother's house on the farm. Uh, I did too. Uh, the smells of the outhouse on a hot August day. <laughs> Not <to> good. Go. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Not good. And you're down to the covers of the Sears Robot catalog, all the inside 
pages are ripped. <laughs> right. Back down to the yellow pages. Neil, yeah. Neil, did your grandmother have a, a one-holer or a two-holer? No, it was just a one-holer. It was just one-holer. Oh, my and, grandmother uh, had a two-holer. Oh, he was rich. Well, <laughs> well it was just Jesus. my grandmother and grandfather, and I don't think they went together, but when my uncle came back from World War II, uh, the first thing he did was his with his get out of the army and get out of the war, money was to build her an indoor uh, bathroom. Oh, isn't that nice, huh? Yeah, I never forget yeah, we that. We used to work. Uh, there you go. Now that's love get, for you. Get equated. <laughs> yeah. Equ- equated to the race car days where you, where you had a full house outhouse with dual spools and overhead flush. <laughs> you. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, keep praying that a lot of these people that uh, are supposed to be following guidelines would follow them a little bit better than what's going on. Uh, it does get you a little bit nervous because we're afraid of of it reoccurring because if they haven't done what they should and they're a carrier, and, of course, nobody knows whether you are or you aren't until you get tested. And we haven't been tested. I don't know about a lot of you folks. Uh, no. Because, you know, we haven't have, gone yeah. anywhere, and as long as you're healthy, they don't want you to do that. So yeah. we're trying to follow those guidelines. But it, Mike, did you say you've been tested? No, I said I, I hadn't been. Oh, I thought you said you had. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully well. hopefully they find the cure here, and you just go to your local doctor and get a shot like a flu shot. Maybe we can yeah. head off what's coming. That's going to be ahead a yeah, one can only hope that happens. Yeah. And oh, by the way, Neil, you know, you could go into that third dresser drawer <laughs> and kind of in the back where you got just one sock. And yeah. You just you take the sock right and use that in the bathroom, you know. Well, yeah. We well. keep praying for everyone, that's for sure. You know, these yeah. bandits robbing banks, of course, they yeah. used to use women's nylon socks over their heads. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if that would work. They don't have No, I'm afraid the virus goes women. right through one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it would. Well, well. We, we work around every issue that we can and just try not to gripe too hard. It uh, doesn't do any good at this point. You just have to accept what's going on and just do your best yeah. so you can try to get over it and, and uh, just pray that someone finds something. Everybody's working yeah. so hard. That's the yeah. thing. It looks, it looks like it's going to be a longer than April 30th. As far as <laughs> Way longer. Yeah. yeah. yeah Kiddingly, I said to Don last night, oh, goody, that means I can stay in a couple of more months. <laughs> Uh, hey Dorothy, but, uh, before we yeah. go, uh, I, we got a new member today, yes, and I, I, got pa- that. I sent it uh, to you, so you'll be able yep. to tell us about that hopefully. Yeah, in I've Monday already got show. it on my uh, announcements for uh, Monday. Very good. In, and uh, we did have another letter on our uh, website uh, telling us to be safe. And many thanks yeah. for all yeah. we do. So I've got that to let well, people know. Well, my wife is waiting for me on the back porch as we normally sit for about two hours every afternoon about this time. So yeah, I'm we going wouldn't to... want to take you away from them cars. 
<laughs> I'm going to give you a little bit of this music in the background as we land the airplane and uh, sign off. We call it our sign off or bumper music. So we'll see you again next week, same time when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. Remember the EAL radio show Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time when we bring you Eastern family music and history. Monday, April 13th, we do novelty songs we once heard during the Eastern years. So, so long, Eastern, for now, till we see you Monday evening, and so long to our Eastern family. We love you. We love, we love you, everybody. Okay. Take it easy. Love you, Take it easy. Stay safe. Thank you for Thank all you do. But you locked me out of your mind and left me standing here behind. Silver wings shining in the sunlight, roaring engine headed somewhere in flight. They're taking you away, leaving me lonely. Fading out of sight Silver wings Shining in the sun Taking you away and leaving me alone.